Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. attack on i mean it's attack on the supernatural the, the whole supernatural world something like israel um, being commanded to massacre all these nations that's kind of a sub point and it's it's a ramification of destroying the supernatural view of genesis 6 but the main purpose of it really does deal with jesus as the son of god what happens then is all these Jews, because there's this ability within the system of thinking in ancient Jewish mind to be able to accept that, yeah, there can be one God, but there can be more than one person, put it in Christian terms, all these Jews are becoming Christians. Massive Jewish conversions in the first century. So then what happens is that uh, after 40 years of this, the temples are destroyed and Judaism is scattered to the four winds. They don't have a temple, they don't have a centralized religion anymore. And so what they did was they put the kibosh on the supernatural interpretation of Genesis 6 and said that anybody who takes that view is a heretic. They did that because they had to find a way to save their religion, essentially, <laughs> because Jesus, was, Jesus had come, their Messiah had come, and they had utterly rejected him. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. And we are privileged today to be joined by Doug Van Dorn. Doug is a pastor out in Colorado, and he's author of over 10 books. And we're going to focus in on today his book, Giant Sons of the Gods. And it centers on Genesis 6, right? The interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And this is central to understanding the entire narrative of the Bible. And if you've been listening to us for any length of time, you know that this story, this theme, being understood properly has myriad ramifications for how you understand history, for how you understand God, the Bible, the times we live in, and the times that are coming up. In the end times, what is predicted by Jesus, by John in the book of Revelation. And so we are going to do our best to 
give credence to the supernatural view of Genesis 6, which we believe is the proper and only proper exegetical way to approach the text, in line with other scripture as well, and to debunk the popular naturalistic view, which is either the Sethite view or the divine king view. But both views have a naturalistic bent of Genesis 6, that it was not angels that left their own estate in heaven to come down and marry human women. And the result of that union was the giants. And as strange and supernatural as that sounds, that is what the Bible records. So without further ado, let's bring on Doug. Let's jump right in. We appreciate your time. We value your 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 time as well. Um, I, I know your book has been re-released and uh, looks great. And um, I, I, I saw the the prologue. Gave a little shout out to Nate and Luke. That's yeah. cool. And um, so I know we got a list of questions that I don't know, Pete. Did you forward it to him or, or not? But we we had a few things we wanted to discuss, and we'll just see how this conversation goes. So sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah. So welcome, Doug Van Dorn. Yeah, you've um, you've authored quite a few books, but the one that we kind of wanted to to focus on tonight is maybe the. Um, I guess the, the opening chapter or two of uh, your book, Giant Sons of the Gods. And so, yeah, we found you on Blurry Creatures, and that show is uh, what inspired us to start our own podcast. And um, when uh, we were emailing back and forth and trying to figure out, you know, what should we talk about, you know, I said, well, let's go to that book. And then, I don't know, it was maybe a day or so later, I thought, well, let's focus in on the, the Sethite view of Genesis 6. And really what sticks out to me about that is um, just how important that is to understanding the Bible. And when we, when we started this thing, it was really just kind of a discussion group trying to get other Christians involved and talking about some of these things because, you know, the churches, churches don't teach this stuff. And they don't talk about Nephilim and, and things like that. And um, so that's where we started, episode one. Um, but, you know, we've kind of learned some things along the way. And you being very knowledgeable about that sort of thing, we thought, well, what better to to discuss than to bring you on and kind of go back to the beginning. So a little bit like uh, the Princess Bride, Indigo Montoya, I'm going back to the beginning to be seen. So, <laughs> so I wanted to start real quick with a quote from, um, I don't know, uh, Doug or Luke, if you've ever heard of this guy, uh, Dante Fortson. Oh, yeah. I've heard of him. I, yeah. I've actually talked to him Have you? a few oh, times. Oh, wonderful. On, yeah, through email and stuff like that. So. Okay. Yeah, I, um, I bought a book of his a, f- a few months back called um, The Lines of Seth, A Brief History of Heresy. And in the intro, he says, uh, the lines of Seth theory is one of the most important theories that appears in the Bible. It's so important because much of our understanding of the Bible, starting at Genesis 6, is dependent upon whether or not this story is true. The interpretation of the events of Noah's time will set the foundation for most of the Old Testament, portions of the New, and it's key to understanding much of end-time Bible prophecy. The position someone takes on that will ultimately affect how they view God, the Bible, and prophecy in general. 
So that's that's why to me, hopefully to Luke, maybe to you, Doug, it's so important because atheists throw this at us and say, "Look at your genocidal god." What do you think, Doug? <laughs> is that is that something you come across, <laughs> or is or is that like? I mean, I know Christians aren't taught this stuff, so we don't really have a defense. Yeah, I mean, you go to the to the genocidal thing, and this is something Dr. Heiser, I think, really kind of popularized that that when you have a supernatural view of Genesis six, you start to understand the relationship of like the name of the name of the mountain Hermon that they came down on, and how it's connected etymologically to the idea of the ban the that where Israel's supposed to go in and and uh, completely wipe out every man, woman, and child in certain places, but not others. It's like it's like why would they why would they do that? You know, and why wouldn't they? Why would God say you're not supposed to go and kill all the Moabites or the Ammonites, uh, the Edomites, but you are supposed to kill you know these other peoples? Well, if you have just a naturalistic Sethite view of that. <clears throat> Genesis 6 seems totally irrelevant and you don't really have any good answers. But if you have a supernatural view and you understand that the peoples that God told um, Israel to wipe out are related to that event and the uh, watchers and angels and, and giants that came out of it from a supernatural point of view. Now, all of a sudden, you have an explanation that, you know, you'll read it. You'll read guys just dancing around. Uh, the issue not coming up with anything that's really satisfactory to a lot of people, like you said, atheists, um, because there is no answer that's really satisfactory Mm-mm. until you understand um, who these people were and what the origin is and how abominable what what took place there was. Yeah, and um, and it was really the the dominant view, you know, for hundreds of years, as you mentioned in your book, right and. And it wasn't until the opposition to Jesus as the Messiah is that where it where we really see it begin to take root is in in kind of the Jewish opposition to the two powers in heaven kind of thing. I, I think you mentioned something about starting in Syria, right? Yeah. How familiar are do you, do you suppose your audience will be to this question to see how deep you want to go into it? <laughs> Uh, pretty, pretty familiar. Yeah. Let's, I, I wanted to, to start maybe with just with the, uh, with the origin. Cause I, I remember I, maybe it was with Nate and Luke on Blurry Creatures. You were talking about, um, the origin of the opposition to, um, the Messiah, because if you had the two powers in heaven view that, uh, that there was this other divine figure and now here comes the son of God, son of man, they wanted to erase that possibility, right? They wanted to naturalize it. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, to me, this is one of the most important um, lines of argument that we can give. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a sola scriptura guy, but I believe the scripture alone is our foundation for these things. But I also believe that you can use other things to come to the, uh, alongside of it, that will will show that it's, you know, demonstrate that it's true and, when you look at the early history, um, both in the Jewish Jewish uh, groups, intertestamental, um, and then in the earliest church, and people don't understand this because they they've been told that this has been the view of the church their whole life, 
um, and that's the only view that it's really ever had. Um, that's just not true. The earliest, the, and it's, and it's unanimous. And we have, I have a, an appendix that I added to the new uh, 10th anniversary edition of the Giants that, that gives a whole bunch of these uh, listed off. People okay. can look at quick reference. And, um, you know, we have like 20 different Jewish um, texts that, that all have the exact same story. It's all supernatural when they talk about it. And we have none that are naturalistic. And then same thing is found in the, in the church um, up until, I think, 250 AD when a historian in Julius Africanus basically says that uh, he had heard about a view um, that was kind of a natural view. And he's like, oh, that kind of sounds good to me. But he mm-hmm. also mentioned that the other view. So even with him, it's not like, it's not like he took that view. He kind of might have leaned towards it. And then you go another 100 years, 350 A.D., until the church starts changing its mind. And it actually happened very quickly in the church, probably over the course of less than 50 years, that everyone in the, in the early church held to a supernatural view of Genesis 6. And then very quickly, that shifted. And I think that happened mostly because of what was taking place in Rome and, and how Augustine was writing and and becoming so popular and Chrysostom was his contemporary. And these are two of the biggest church fathers that, that, that there are. Right. And they adopted the natural view. And so that just kind of stuck. And um, their arguments for it are just horrible. They don't seem to understand the history of it, first of all. So it's not like they had, I mean, I can't, in some ways I can't blame them because they don't have Google and they can't do search engines and stuff and say, hey, what did, what did Justin think? You know, they have to go and look it up if they didn't know it. <laughs> and uh, good luck with that. So um, I, don't, I don't necessarily blame them, but their argument for the view that they took was essentially that they had heard of the supernatural and it seemed absurd to them. Therefore, it can't be true. Right. And, uh, you know, so when you find that the entire church, the entire Jewish church up until a certain point was in agreement, and then all of a sudden it changes, that should raise some serious eyebrows um, in people's minds. Absolutely. Like I think I say in the book, the church, the Christian church held this view for longer than America has been a country. So that's a long time. Yeah. And not to mention... The Canadai scripture, you know, Peter, uh, Jude, make reference right. to Enoch and uh, in chains, the angels in chains, or, you know, angels so that it, they're making correct. So it, it's, to me, I think it's just an, a, a ploy of the enemy to just take take the focus to something natural to weaken the truth and I don't know, it just weakens the church, honestly. Yeah. It's an attack on, um, I mean, it's an attack on the supernatural, the, the whole supernatural world. So, right. you know, um, something like Israel um, being commanded to, you know, massacre all these nations, that's kind of a sub point. Um, and it's, and it's, it's a ramification of destroying the supernatural view of Genesis 6, but the main purpose of it, and you were hinting at this, Pete, when you asked the question, um, really does deal with Jesus as the Son of God. So what 
what seems to have happened, and this is detailed by a scholar named Alan Segal, who was a Jewish, um, not, not a Christian historian, who uh, wrote a book called Two Powers in Heaven that Heiser um, made popular and, and kind of took um, that to new lengths with his dissertation. Um, Segal basically said that something was going on in, in the first century up until maybe the early second century in the church, which was that there, there, there was these competing ideas of um, the nature of God in Judaism. So you had kind of a Unitarian view of God, um, and then you had more of a Binitarian view of God. So you had a God who is one being in one person versus a God who is one being in more than one person. You know, as Christians, we would call that a Trinity, but yeah. It was kind of a it was kind of latent idea that that they were really focusing on two persons instead of three, but nevertheless they were. It, it, this was an acceptable view in Judaism that you could believe in two powers in heaven, so two Yahwehs. You know, uh, Genesis nineteen twenty four talks about how. Uh, and by the way, is one of um, the church fathers most. Uh, famous verses to use for the Trinity in the Old Testament. It mm. says that the Lord, Yahweh, rains down fire and sulfur from the Lord out of heaven. So you have two Yahwehs in that verse. So the fathers would say, one's fa- one's, the church fathers would say, one is the whole heavenly father and one is the son. Um, so this wasn't something that the Christians were making up. The Jews were talking about this too before Christians ever came along. And so it's into this um, that I think John's gospel, especially, but not exclusively, is really um, coming into that. And when it says things like, you know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh. So, um, and dwelt among us. And then right after that, he talks about, um, no one has ever seen God, but God uh, there's, there's two gods in, I think it's John one eighteen. just like there's two Lords in Genesis nineteen twenty four. The only God who is at the father's side or something like that has made him known. So you have two gods, but yet there's only one God in the gospel of John, you know? So, you know, John's famous for saying that, um, Jesus talks about how he and the father are one, you know, that he says that all the time in John's gospel. So what's happening there is that Jesus is calling himself the son of God, right? Mm-hmm. And son of God is this title that comes from Genesis 6, 4 uh, in the plural. They're the sons of God. And all these Jews knew what he was talking about. So in, I think it's John 10 or 12, I don't remember which one. I think it's John 10. Jesus starts talking about how, you know, in your law, it says that, um, there are these other gods and um, the classic modern contemporary evangelical way of translating or or of understanding what Jesus is saying there is that he's calling somehow the Pharisees gods, just like he is. In other words, they're lowering the, the, the meaning of the word God, a heavenly being to somehow an earthly ruler. So Jesus is essentially saying, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a leader. I'm a rabbi. You're a rabbi. What's the problem? Mm Mm-hmm. But that doesn't solve any problem for the Pharisees because it just only makes them more angry and they want to kill him. <laughs> so when he says that uh, your law says that um, um, 
there's these other gods, and he's quoting from Psalm 82, uh, verse 6. What Jesus is doing is he's saying that there are these other heavenly beings called sons of God, which are found in, in the first verse of that psalm, Psalm 82, 1. This the same group of entities that, um, same title that's found in Genesis 6 um, through 4. And Jesus is saying not that the Pharisees are among those, but that he is. Mm. But then he goes a step further and says, but I and the Father are one. Mm -hmm. So in other words, he's distinguishing himself from them as well. Okay. So what happens then is all these Jews, because there's this, there's this um, ability within the system of thinking in ancient Jewish mind to be able to accept that, yeah, there can be, there can be somehow one God, I'm a monotheist, but there can be more than one person, to put it in Christian terms, all these Jews are becoming Christians. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, massive Jewish conversions in the first century. So then what happens is that uh, after 40 years of this, the temples are destroyed and Judaism is scattered to the four winds. Mm. They don't have a temple. They don't have a centralized religion anymore. Um, and they're losing all these converts to Christianity, this cult of Judaism. And so what they did was they put the kibosh on the supernatural interpretation of Genesis 6 and said that anybody who takes that view is a, her is a heretic. Now, they did it. They did it more subtly than that, but yeah, go ahead and ask the question. I was just going to say, when, when abouts do you, do you think they started to say that? That seems to have happened late first century into the early second century. Okay. So now this is in, you know, this is in Israel. And I suppose that the rabbis had ways of, of getting information to their other synagogues, you know, in other countries or whatever. Um, but they did that because they had to find a way to save their religion, essentially, mm. <laughs> because Jesus was Jesus had come, their Messiah had come, and they had utterly rejected him. Wow! Um, and and Catholicism so, did the same thing, right? They they well. Banned. So what? Here's yeah. my here's my, here's what I think happened in the church. Okay. So uh, and this comes from a scholar named Yap Dodens, who um, uh, is in the Netherlands, and he did his dissertation kind of on the history of Genesis six and its interpretation. But then he's done some other work as well. And he looked into the provenance or the origin of this whole idea in the Christian church of where the naturalistic view of Genesis 6 started. And he says that it seems to have started in Syria um, sometime probably in the third century. Okay. So I think what happened was that um, the church just kind of inherited this view from the from the Jews and you know the supernatural view and I firmly believe that Jude and Peter and and Paul in a couple places and even Jesus um, held this view yep so it's not like it's just it's like what you were saying earlier it's not like just uh, extra biblical like the New Testament itself holds this view um, but so the the church fathers just kind of inherited it and they just accepted it, and they just talked about it as fact. Right. Somehow, um, 
that Jewish view, and maybe it was through people like Julius Africanus, the historian who, mm. who um, is traveling around, writing history books, learning about other countries, brings this view into a certain part of the church. And however it happened, I don't think it was nefarious. I mean, unless it was from a, you know, some sort of like an Aryan cult or something like that. I don't know. Um, but I think they just kind of lost it. And then over, t- over a short period of time, this other view just started spreading, you know? Right. Yeah. And next thing you know, you're, you're in the middle of Augustine saying that it's absurd to believe such things. And, and you, you mentioned Augustine and, and Chrysostom, was it? Were, were probably the two yeah. that really popularized it because of their the clout that they had? Yep, absolutely. Okay. Because, yeah, at some point, um, you know, the Jews said it was heresy under penalty of death, and the Catholic Church did the same thing. The angel view of Genesis 6 was banned. Um, and that's that's interesting to me, just something as you were talking about the Jews trying to preserve their religion. It, so the, the word that came to mind when you were saying that is their targums, right? So they, they put those on par with Scripture, more or less. Well, what does the, the Catholicism have? They have the papal uh, edicts, right? So they, they put the what the Pope says in history, the, all the Popes, on par with Scripture. And it's just kind of interesting. They're trying to preserve their doctrine uh, getting around the Bible. So, yeah, wow. So that's... That I am, I'm with you because you know when you think about um, the corruption of truth, right? I mean, just like the 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 physic law of atrophy, you start with something true, and it becomes degraded over time. You typically don't have some a falsehood that starts and then the truth, you know, comes over time, right? So when we're talking about the origin of how Genesis 6 was understood, then the truth would be at the outset, right? Well, so we wanted to get into, well, because especially because of um, of your background in, um, you know, being a pastor, going through seminary, what are, what are pastors in training taught? I mean, is this like the dominant, like 90 plus percent, of all seminaries is teaching a naturalistic view and are there other naturalistic views that are as popular? I know I've heard of like the divine kingship, but that seems like it's more minority. Is it mainly the Sethite? Yeah, it's definitely a minority view. Um, you know, I, I can only speak from my personal experience and when I hear other people say, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a reformed guy. So, um, in, in our tradition, Augustine and Calvin hold a lot of clout. And um, when you go to those two guys on this particular issue, and you have to understand that when they were writing, you know, in the 1500s, that the Book of Enoch had not been, quote, rediscovered. It was never lost, but um, it was kind of, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happened to it (laughs) in the West. Yeah. I mean, I know that the Ethiopian church, they kept it. Um, and yes. it was rediscovered in the late 1700s. But my point is they didn't have this book to go looking at. So um, I don't know if it would have changed their mind or not, but they just kind of inherited the tradition and they never really questioned it. And when they brought it up at certain points in time, especially Martin Luther, 
he's just a he he ridicules this just as bad as as, as Chrysostom and Theodoret did back in the day. So yep. um, Calvin's kind of he's kind of interesting because he does not believe it uh, in Genesis six, but then when you come to something like the Sodom and Gomorrah story, he'll admit hmm. that it's angels and they want to have sex with humans. So <laughs> I find that kind of interesting, but um, yeah. So, you know, in the reformed world, uh, basically, it's just kind of this is what the tradition has been and we're not going to change it. So you can kind of hear some similarities there to what goes on in Rome with tradition as well. You know, I went to an evangelical school, so just more broadly evangelical, and I can't remember them really ever talking about it one way or the other. But I would assume, based on what I've heard with, you know, all the interactions I've had with other people that the majority of evangelicals just kind of take the Sethite view as for granted, just like, yep. just like everybody else does. And I think it's coming from that same root. I mean, this is, this is how Protestantism start. This was their view and it was never really challenged for a couple hundred years. And why would it be? Cause we didn't have those early documents that we had rediscovered to worry about. So, I mean, you get two, 200, 250, 300 years of tradition of Protestantism up behind you and, that's going to be a tough thing to break, even if you find Enoch and Jubilees and these other books that are talking right. about it. That makes sense because you 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 kind of look at it like these historical backdrop or uh, backstops, um, like you just said, a few hundred years of Protestant Protestantism. <laughs> That's a tough one to get out. Uh, Calvin and Luther, right? So you got that, and then who were they influenced by? Augustine. You know, Luther, an Augustinian monk, and, and Calvin said basically everything he wrote was was from Augustine. You know, and so yeah, those are those are heavy duty backstops to that to that view. Um, but what are what are people taught as the reasons for for Seth? I mean, do they do they look at you know? Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Is that is that kind of where they're they're starting from? Well, yeah, I heard a guy give like 15 explanations for it one time. Um, and some of the things that I heard were just absurd. He, one of the things he, I remember him saying was that you don't find any supernatural beings in the Bible until Genesis 6. So what a strange thing to have all of a sudden Genesis 6, you have these angels and stuff like that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I mean, you ever read Genesis two and Genesis three? I mean, you have the angel of the Lord, you have God, you have Satan, you have cherubim guarding the tree. I mean, what are you talking about? Where in the world yeah. is this even coming from? So you have those kinds of things that are just like, seriously, what in the world? But then you have other things that are kind of, you know, uh, I call them anachronistic. So what they're doing is they'll take things that are, true later in the Bible, and they'll read them back into Genesis 6. So probably the main thing that you'll find is in the law of Moses, how it forbids um, marriage to uh, unbelievers, right? And in fact, you find some pretty brutal things when that goes on. Sometimes they're killed for doing it. Then you come to like um, the reforms of Ezra, and Ezra gets absolutely furious. Malachi gets absolutely furious because these these uh, people have come back to the land and they're marrying these pagans. And so they're like, you have to stop this. So what, what happens is you get 
people doing biblical theology, but they're doing it backwards. So they're reading Ezra back into Genesis 6, and in fact, they're reading it back into the genealogies in Genesis 4 um, and 5. Because what they, they, what they then say is then, look, um, where does this come from? Well, since we know that the Sethite view is true and we don't question it, <laughs> what must be going on there is that the marriage, um, the marriages have to have been these marriages between believers and unbelievers. And so then you can go to things like even Jesus. So he's even newer, right? Than Ezra and those guys. And Jesus goes, well, as it was in the days of Noah, where people are marrying and giving in marriage. And you don't, you don't stop and ask what that could mean originally. You just say, oh, he's talking about the Sethite view, marrying and giving in marriage. So people in the last days are going to be believers and unbelievers getting married, and they're not supposed to do that. And so this becomes like the big argument for why Genesis 6 is a Sethite thing, because, you know, you have these Sethite godly people, and you have these Canite evil people, and they're all the Sethites are good, and all the Canites are evil, and they just kind of run with it. <laughs> they also... Jesus's own words, it's kind of like what you said, taking something that's taken place in, in the course of history and then plugging it back into Genesis 6. The popular one uh, that you didn't use an example, I'm thinking of is Jesus's own words about, we shall be like the angels, not giving in to marriage, right? So that people think, yeah. well, if we're going to be like the angels. How could angels actually procreate back in Genesis time when Jesus said, <laughs> so they're taking words and then they're exactly plugging it they back. Yeah, great point. And they're, they're not only taking what Jesus said, but they're reading very specific interpretations of what he said back into the text and then making Jesus say things he's not saying because of their reading of Genesis 6. So it's like a big right. circular argument. It is right, right. It's totally circular. Even though Jesus is talking about marriage and he's talking about heaven, when this has to do with not heaven and procreating, which may or may not involve marriage, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's just, um, I wanted to ask you briefly a little sidebar that I thought of in, in terms of the anachronistic, because I'm, I'm with you on that. I think that's what they're doing. One question I've had, this is kind of a theological sidebar, is, you know, Cain gets blasted by God for not doing the right sacrifice, and we all just kind of assume, well, he should have known better that he was supposed to do the kind of sacrifice Abel was doing. What, what's your um, take on that? Is that just, just one of those details that that God leaves out in, or, or Moses leaves out in Genesis? Yeah, um, I do think that God revealed to them how he wanted to be worshipped. Um, I think you have hints of that in the text. Um, you know, God, when he covered Adam and Eve, he killed an animal in order to cover them, and that seems very much to foreshadow things that you find in in the you know in the law in Leviticus and stuff like that for atonement. Okay, um, we're obviously reading some things into that and kind of guessing, but yeah. I, I I think that I think that the only reason the only way that you can explain that God would get mad at what Cain did. You notice that when you read the story carefully, it doesn't say that Cain's heart was bad. It says that if you do right, will you not be accepted? That hmm. assumes that he knew what was right to do. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was just curious on that one. I thought thought I would pick a pastor's brain on that <laughs> one real quick. <laughs> Obviously, so we could hit some of the foundation, the history of the Sethite view. Even your time in seminary, you were taught that way. So fast forward into your ministry and to the point where you started researching and, and, and writing um, to pub- first publish this book. So what shifted in you? What did you come across that prompted you to to write on this subject and obviously you're not along the sethite view anymore you know if you ever were right um i'd be interested to know what 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 changed yeah i would say that i was default kind of a sethite view and when people would ask me the question about genesis 6 i would be like i mean i don't really know the answer um and i I hadn't really thought about it. I didn't know where I could go to really read about it. And I didn't really care that much. So my, my, my journey into this was just kind of completely unexpected. I mean, I'm preaching through at the time, I think I was preaching through either Genesis or Exodus. Um, and I, and I came across this article on uh, this uh, textual variant in Deuteronomy 32, eight and the sons of God. So in that verse, it talks about how God divides the nations according to the number of the sons of God. That's what the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls say. But the Hebrew Masoretic says, according to the number of the sons of Israel. And by the way, when we're talking about the rabbis um, squashing the view, what they did was they changed certain texts in their own Hebrew they either eliminated portions of them or they changed numbers or they changed words. So they changed numbers in, uh, in uh, genealogies, for instance, in order to make it so that Melchizedek could not be a supernatural entity, but instead was um, the son of Noah, uh, Shem. All you have to do is take, take out 600 years and boom, you got, you're fine. Um, you change sons of God to sons of Israel. You change the number of Israelites that went down into Israel or into Egypt from 75 to 70. And now all of a sudden, voila, uh, no more supernatural sons of God in those passages. So it was very tricky, very conniving. The early church was very aware of what they were doing, by the way. Uh, and they knew why they were doing it. So I'm reading, I'm reading a Heiser. I, I'm reading, well, I'm reading this article and I'm like, this is so fascinating. And I, and I, uh, just put it away cause it wasn't what I was really studying. And a few weeks later, I'm finding myself reading a different article by a guy that sounded almost the same. And I'm like, it couldn't possibly be the same guy. And it turns out it was, and it turns out it was Dr. Heiser. And at that point in time, he was putting out kind of a very early version of his unseen realm book. Um, that he was giving out for free. And I just started reading it and I couldn't put it down. And I'll tell you the main reason why it wasn't because of giants. Um, and it wasn't because of the sons of God. It was because of what he was doing with Christ in the Old Testament. Um, I mean, for me, that's what it's all about. Um, yeah. It is helping, helping Christians see that, that what we have in the New Testament is not new and that the person who comes here and calls himself the son of God and says he is God is he didn't just start to exist at that moment in time. He has always been Israel's God. And, and Mike had, I don't know, he only had like three chapters or something like that dedicated to that. And then he had three chapters dedicated to the giants and, and, you know, all these things are spinning around in my head with 
the Christ in the Old Testament thing being the main thing, but I have nobody to talk to about this, this like 12 years ago. And so I know none of my friends, none of my pastor friends are going to want to talk about this. There's no way. Um, and so the only way I could figure out what to do was to just start writing about it. And next thing I know, I'm like, I got a, quite a bit of material here on the Giants. I bet I could write a book on that. So that's basically right. how it happened. <laughs> yes. So did, did uh, so obviously you, you published this, this book. It's kind of a, uh, a shock probably to your pastor friends. <laughs> what about your congregation? How did, how did that all go yeah, down? Know, so <laughs> for, for really for none of my pastor friends or my congregation, the Sethite view, this wasn't a, a big deal to anybody that I knew personally. Like nobody had a vested interest in maintaining the Sethite view. I've okay. since met some people that for whatever reason think that they do and they need to, and they get really, really angry. When you hmm. dare talk about, even bring up a supernatural interpretation, which I've never really understood that other than to say that it seems to me that that's some kind of a, there's some kind of a spiritual, um, moral thing that's going on in the heart that I don't understand. I never had that kind of a reaction to it. Most of my friends didn't and my church didn't. So okay. as I'm teaching this stuff, I try to be pretty careful about how I went about starting it, you know? Because this is yeah, some weird, you, weird find stuff. That, but, you'll find that one guy that, that wants to rail against it. Yeah, but, you know, I, I think I was able to do it slowly enough and, and um, methodically enough, logically enough, to where we never really had any kind of problems with it at all. And In fact, most of my, my pastor friends that read the book, they're like, wow, that's really interesting. I never thought about that before. <laughs> and they never really got mad yeah. about it. I don't know that many of them really... God is excited as I did about it, but <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> well, I'm with you. I think it's definitely spiritual because, I mean, again, a lot of people, like you said, they're like, eh, I can take it or leave it. But if it matters to people who are going to rail against God and not understand why the flood happened, why these tribes were, were wiped out, you know, that that's a big deal. And that's just one more feather in Satan's cap to, to keep people away from the truth. Also, the way I look at it, and part of the reason why we started this conversation, this podcast, is Jesus' own words in Matthew. You know, he said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be for my return. So he's telling us to point to look back to history. So now we got to go, let's dig into Genesis at the times of Noah and really understand that. And maybe it will foreshadow and we could better see the, the, the seasons and the times that we're living in um, by understanding history. Yeah, so, you know when, exactly. uh, I don't know how, how much you guys want to go here, but um, the last three years, I've seen so many of my friends. And I'm not going to say there's a direct correlation, but I think there's something indirect, at least at least in the background related to it. So many of my friends that are not seeing what's been going on in the world hmm. also hold curiously to a naturalistic view of Genesis six. Most of my friends that I would say do see what's going on in the world, um, especially as it relates to very serious problems of um, genetic manipulation, creating hybrids, trying to wipe out mankind through 
um, mRNA and many, many more things that they have planned. Um, most of the people that I know who are able to see actually have a supernatural view of Genesis 6. So I think that's a wow. very interesting thing. Like I said, I don't know that it's directly correlated because I, it's not a, it's not a one-to-one. There, there are some people on both sides that would be on the other side of it. But um, when you like what you were just saying, when you were able to look back and see things going on in Genesis 6, and then you hear things, whether or not you think that what's happening right now is like the end of all things or not, when you see the similarities, um, the same ideas trying to wipe out humanity um, in both of these time periods, you can't help but scratch your head. But if you don't have that view at all, and all it is is just believers marrying unbelievers, then you don't even think twice about it. No. And I'm, I also think of uh, Daniel and the vision that he had of the statue. So I've heard it described, you know, the head and the different body parts and the different metals of being different leaders in different time periods in history. And I've heard it described dealing with the feet that was partly clay, partly iron is points also to the Genesis six reference and also the Matthew 24 reference as it was in the days of Noah. Noah, the way I look at it, and I want your opinion on this, that the iron and the clay is the that angelic and that humanity mixing once again or attempting to mix, but they don't bind properly. Yeah. Um, so I actually added a couple chapters at the end of this new edition, and I dealt with both the Matthew and the Daniel one. And so my own personal view is that I think that the Matthew one has some has some credibility in terms of uh, future with Nephilim possibilities. The Daniel one, I don't see it. Um, okay. Because there's no, there's no reference to angels anywhere in that text that I can see, other than maybe the statue itself being somehow a, an image of a god. Um, but to get that specific with the mixing of the clay, because I've heard that too, um, and it's become right. kind of a popular argument. And I looked into it, and I'm like, I'm just not seeing it. <laughs> Unless here, here's just a theory. If if you're looking at those different regions of the statues and you're attributing one to like Alexander or maybe even one to Hitler or something, maybe the the last anti you know the Antichrist that comes on the scene is going to be part angelic, part human, and he's going to f- be the fulfillment of the feat. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm just throwing that the out. Problem, there. The problem with what you're doing there is that. In- and I, I can see this is a, it's an interesting thing, right? Because you have with any kingdom um, in, the, in the divine council worldview, you have a God over every kingdom. So with Nebuchadnezzar, there's a prince of Babylon. And with, um, you know, the prince of with Alexander, there's the prince of Greece. So like, I get that. But the problem is that you start picking and choosing and, you, and you're not being uh, uniform in the way that you in the way that you interpret it. So you've got. Um, well, a God at the top, or, or let's say, say you have a, a man here and a man here and a man here and a man here, but all of a sudden now it's a God and a man. It's like, I don't know how you can do that because you're dealing with gold and silver and bronze and clay and iron, right? So they're all, 
they're all these metal things. So I would think that those would need to all be either one or the other. So like, I don't have a problem if we would say that in the future, just like in the past, there's supernatural um, evil in the kingdoms. I think that's what Revelation's doing when it talks about the beast. I mean, that's completely supernatural evil. And that at the end, even if you want to say that there's an antichrist there that is, you know, there's a supernatural component to him. I don't have a problem with that. But it's this whole idea that the Nephilim are coming back because there's a mixing of, you know, the clay and the and the uh, iron there that I'm just like, I just don't see it. <laughs> okay. Um, I wanted to go back to um, Genesis 4.25. And I, again, we, we hinted at this earlier, but... Um, the idea that that Seth had this godly line, right? Yeah. That that very last phrase, and then at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And I wanted to ask if you know of any textual support, Masoretic or um, Septuagint, for the possibility that that was mistranslated and it really meant profaned the name of the Lord. I know I know you um, touched on that in one of your interviews, and Chuck Misler um, kind of proposed that view as a possibility. But is there any textual support, or is that just coming from the Targums? Yeah, so, I mean, it's the Targums that are doing that. They're saying that a man began to pollute the name or whatever they say there. But the Targums are getting it from the Hebrew. So, in other words, I'm not, I wouldn't say that it's a mistranslation what we what we've done, but I would say that the Targums are giving an alternative possibility translation that okay. isn't usually considered. Okay, so I, okay. I'm not, I, I, my my position there is not that the that it's a wrong translation, but that it's possible that we could have a different translation that's exactly okay. the opposite of what it says. <laughs> right. Yeah, because you bring up some good points. It's like, what? They didn't know what his name was before then? It's like, like there was no godly people before then? And, yeah, I don't know. I think that's interesting. Um, with the time that we had left, I, I thought, and, and we'll see how far we can get with this, and, and, and maybe, Doug, if you'd be willing to come back, we can pick up where we left off. But um, what I really wanted to do, again, is come full circle where we began first episode and just really just uh, thoroughly uh, debunk this Sethite view, because I think it's important for people, whether they're, you know, pastors, whether they're longtime church members, or they're atheists, agnostic, to understand this view really doesn't have merit. And um, in your book, you say, you know, you go through some preliminary questions. And what I really like about this, Doug, is, is you're, you're doing that inductive method kind of thing, right? Where you're you're just asking a lot of questions and starting there. So you're looking at Genesis 1 through 4, where it says, you know, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they chose whoever they liked, and uh, they begat giants from them. And these became uh, the men of old, men of renown, so basically famous men. And so you say, you know, what's going on between these people and what is happening in these four verses to understand why God destroyed the world with the flood? Because again, it's that it's this is right in introducing the flood. Flood is about to be talked about, right? So 
it's it's connected to that. Um, and one of the things you bring up is about equivocation and just the the inconsistency of it. But uh, I mean, I got a whole I got a whole list I could go through. I know you could do a better <laughs> job, but of just all the reasons. I mean, we already mentioned one. There's no mention of Seth and and uh, daughters of Cain. Yeah, why, why don't we just um, go through the text? How does that sound? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so well, I'm just looking at the ESV, and I'll just kind of go as I'm as I'm reading it, just thinking about what comes to my mind. Okay. So start in verse 1, Genesis 6, 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Okay, so this, this sets up two groups of people. You have men and daughters, all right? And the word man there is Adam. So this is clearly talking about humans. Humans began to multiply and daughters are born to them. Now, it says the sons of God saw the daughters of man, and they were attractive. Now, sons of God is another category. Daughters of man is a category that was in the first verse, right? Right. So now we have three groups. Sons of God are called uh, B'nai Ha'elohim. So um, this is a phrase that's found throughout the Bible, about 10 different times in the exact or equivalent way. And it always refers to heavenly beings. And the, mm-hmm. the easiest one you can see this on is Job 38, 7. <clears throat> and that verse talks about how when God was laying the foundations of the earth, man has not even been made yet. And the sons of God, and he calls them the stars, are shouting for joy. So that cannot possibly be humans because Adam hasn't been made. That's right. Um, the two other references to the sons of God and Job also, I don't know how they can possibly be humans because Satan is going into heaven with the sons of God. And then there's a discussion over Job down on the earth. <laughs> so yep. good luck explaining to me, unless there's some sort of a portal I'm not aware of that men are going up there. Yes. I'm not seeing it. I had a coworker try to say, when the morning stars sang for joy, and he's trying to connect the, that, those two parts of that verse in Job 38 and saying, they're talking about stars. I'm like, no. Well, the, so the <laughs> sons of not. God are stars. That's what angels yes, are. Yes, they I mean, are. That, why that, do you think we call right. all our stars gods and names, of, right. names of deities? <laughs> Somehow yep. there was a connection. Yep. But, um, you know, at a couple other places, Psalm 82, 1 talks about the sons of God and it, that's where it refers to the divine council. The divine council is known um, throughout the world as the place where the gods meet on a mountain. Um, this is what Mount Olympus is with Zeus. And you find it in every culture in antiquity. Every single one has this concept. Um, the closest comparison to the Israelite divine council is found in the Ugaritic Baal cycle, where El, the, the, God, the father god, has 70 sons of God. They're, they're, hmm. they're the sons of God, and they are the divine council, and they're all heavenly beings. Okay, well, Psalm 89, I think it's verse 4, 5, 6, right in there, talks about how the sons of God are there, and they're in the skies. So, very clearly, all of these references, the sons of God everywhere else, are talking about heavenly beings. And and is there a... Is there a um 
not a hard and fast necessarily hermeneutical rule, but isn't there this idea of a law of first mention as well? So when you see this appearing, you know, Job being a, a book that predates Genesis even, but you, when you see this this phrase, Bein Elohim, that you, you, you have to have a textual reason, reason to give it a different meaning because you already have its first established meaning. I think that's a very interesting point you bring up. Um, you know, it, it kind of is, I don't know how debatable it is. It's, I mean, it's debatable in terms of the final form of the Torah that we have, that that's clearly later than Job. But okay. what, you know, was Genesis earlier in reality or was Job? I mean, you could argue about that, but I think your point is, it's a solid point. Um, and if, if Job is the background, then that kind of sh- seals the deal on that. Right. But so let's keep going here. So the sons of God. Where everywhere else, they, these are heavenly beings, saw that the daughters of man are attractive. Now, this is important because we just saw the word man in verse 1, and it referred to the Adam. These are men. And it doesn't say when Cain began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to him. It says right. when man was born, or when man began to multiply, and daughters were born to them. So what men? The sons of Adam. That's why the word is Adam. okay so that means that the daughters of man are attractive have to be the daughters of adam literally that's what it is it's the daughters of adam it's not the daughters of seth it's not the daughters of cain it's the daughters of man so what you have just by reading the text is very clearly two groups of people one group is in heaven and one group is on earth yes exactly So uh, the whole point of equivocation, I think, is goes right there. Like you, it says Adam, but you're reading in Cain into one place where you don't read it into the other one. And then it says the sons of God, and you're reading Seth there when it doesn't say Seth, it says God. Yes. So I get the biblical theology and the impulse to do it, but it's not what the text says. Right. Okay, so... Now you, we could fast forward just to verse four. The Nephilim are on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. And then it says the mighty men who are of old and the men of renown. So you have one more group that's here, which is the Nephilim. Now, the popular etymology of Nephilim is that it comes from the word nephal, the verb nephal, which means to fall. And so these are the fallen ones. So in other words, a Sethite view would say that these, these guys are the product of a fallen marriages, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I do think that the idea of fallen is a word play with Nephal, but that's not what the word Nephilim means. So Heiser and, and I think Cyrus Gordon, 80 years before him, proved pretty conclusively that the word Nephilim here has to mean giant because um, there's no way of accounting for the form of the word that we find in um, the only other place that the word is found, which is Numbers 13.33. So mm-hmm. that verse has Nephilim appear two times in it, and there's, it's spelled differently in the two instances. One is like it's spelled here, but then the other one, you got an extra yod, an extra y that, that's fit in there. And in that form of the word, there is no Hebrew way to, to account for it. 
But there is an Aramaic way to account for it, and the word means giant. And in fact, we actually find that word in um, the Targums in Job, (laughs) of course, uh, where it translates Orion, the giant. Ah. So. and the Septuagint as well uh, renders it uh, Yeah, giant. so then that's the other part of that, which is when you come to the end of this, the mighty men that are of old, the men of renown. So the Septuagint is translating Nephilim as giant, but then it also translates men of renown, I think it is, as giant. Hmm. Okay? So it's, you know, it's seeing both of those ideas as giants. Now, my interpretation of the mighty men of old you know, you have this whole dynastic king view that we brought up way earlier that we didn't really talk about. And yep. most of the people that hold to that view are naturalistic in their interpretation. But I see no reason why a, a, a king couldn't be uh, a giant. I mean, that's literally what Gilgamesh is. He's okay. He's a Nephilim king, tyrant. That's exactly what he is. He's a man of renown. If there was ever a man of renown, it's Gilgamesh. Hmm. Um, and then you have uh, this whole idea of the Giborim uh, that becomes the gigantus in the in the Greek, um, coming back again in Genesis ten, where it talks about Nimrod, who is a giborim gigantus, so a giant. And what's interesting about that to me is that Nimrod is often associated with Gilgamesh, right, as the same person. So, um, everything about the actual four verses there, it's is 100% compatible with the supernatural interpretation. And I would argue that on many grounds, it's not compatible with the, the immediate context. It's not compatible with the words. It's not compatible with the larger context. Think about something like this. This one really drives me crazy. I mean, I get, I'm a, guys, I'm a Calvinist, so I believe in election and all the stuff that, right. these, that the Sethite guys um, you know, that they believe theologically, but I think it's ridiculous what they're doing here because they're essentially turning all the sons of Seth into the elect and all the sons of Cain into the damned. And that's ridiculous. It's absurd. Think about this. Um, you've got, you've got on their grounds, you have the sons of God, these, these sons of Cain seeing the daughters of men and supposedly all the sons of Cain are evil and all the daughters of men are good and godly. So why in the world are all these godly fathers giving their daughters to these horribly wicked men? How in the world does that make them godly? That makes them evil on their own ground, right? Yes. So uh, it's just, it's like they haven't thought through what they're saying in the slightest. No, they haven't. They're they're the initiators. They're supposed to be the godly ones. And, um, yeah, and then, I mean, going on, humans can't produce giants, right? You want to just talk a little bit about that? Right. I mean, uh, if if we're reading back uh, stuff from Ezra into this, good luck finding in Ezra or Nehemiah or Malachi or any of the later prophets giants that are being born from these unions of these believers and unbelievers. And good luck finding it anywhere else in all of history. I mean, we see it. We see these kinds of marriages happening all the time today. Giants aren't being born. But that, that, that whole thing is premised on the fact that Nephilim literally means giant. Um, which, if it does mean giant, then that, that point is very solid. If it doesn't mean giant, then I would like to know what it means. Just fallen ones? No. You can't account for the word that way. So, you know, 
that it, this argument of of a, giants being born from believers and non-believers rests on on earlier things that we already talked about. But once you make that point, then I think it's completely solid. Yeah, I, I love how succinctly, I mean, even in just the last 15 minutes, you can unpack those four verses and go, you really have to do some hermeneutical gymnastics to come up with Seth, the Sethite naturalistic view. Um, or you just have just... 15 different <laughs> explanations, you know. Yeah, 15 and different if number one doesn't well, work, you go to number two and just go down the list. No. No, guys, here's what you need. You need you need an Augustine, you need a Luther, you need a Calvin, and about seventeen hundred years of church history. Then you can do it. Now you've now you've got some uh you've got some uh, uh strong guys on your side. <laughs> it makes me it makes me think of the, the Supreme Court nomination process, particularly during the Trump era when they were talking about precedent. You know, the pro-life issues and stuff like that. Because they're trying to really lock them in because we got all this history, these 50 years or whatever, how many decades of that's the way it's been. You can't change it, you know. And then you you talk about church history and that's the tradition. And even Jesus ridiculed them on their traditions. He's like, your traditions are taking you to hell, essentially. You know, it's like you need to get back to the foundational uh, words of Moses that God gave him, you know, uh, I don't yeah, know. That's well put. That's <laughs> well put. Yeah. Um, continuing on though, I mean, unless you wanted to mention anything about more of those four verses, Doug, um, we've got, you know, Peter talking about it, Jude talking about it, Paul referencing, you know, make sure you wear, women are wearing the head covering, covering because of the angels. Right, that's that's a that's hearkening back to that, isn't it? Um, I wanted to ask you real quick. I, I know you mentioned in your book you've got um, an appendix on Peter and Jude. I think kind of going in more detail, but um, in Jude, is it where where they left their own habitation and kept not their or how is it put? It's it's said two different ways. Now, is that a um, is that a way of saying the same thing twice? Or is one of those, as I've heard, potentially referring to leaving their spiritual body and becoming human? Uh, I don't know that I've ever thought about this question, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, to me, I've just always interpreted it as just being that um, this is the supernatural side of crossing over. So in the in the law of Moses, we have all these laws that say you're not supposed to consult witches and necromancers kind of stuff you're not supposed to cross over and this is this is their side of it they they have a position and a dwelling place that's proper which is heaven and however it worked with them they were able to see what was going on down here and they liked it so they they came down here i don't see anything more complex than that all right i i, I wish i would have had the reference but i've i've heard someone put out the idea that looking at the the original language used in one of those two phrases, right? That it's not just a restating of leaving heaven, that that one might actually be talking about like physically being different. But I don't know. I, I guess I'd have to look more into that. But it is it, it's definitely interesting on the, the aspect of God created, there's spiritual laws. There's There's these laws that, that the devil knows that the angelic know that 
a lot of humans don't know. Um, and, and you talked about it like that we're not supposed to do certain things. Otherwise, there's consequences. I guess that's why yeah. the Lord was so detailed to Moses when it comes to certain sins. And it just makes me think of Enoch and the conversation that is documented there of the angels before they sinned. They knew the consequences right. before they did the actions. Right. So they had an understanding of these laws that were in place. I don't know if they were written down anywhere or if they were just told. I don't, we don't know how that all worked out um, during creation. But they definitely had an understanding of, I do this thing, there will be consequences. And let's just do it together. So it's not just Billy over here committing a crime all of us Taking you know is he really going to judge all of us you know i actually <laughs> yeah think that, he did i actually think that um we we have some reason to believe that that they had law, those laws and they knew it um you go back to the garden of eden and the 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 covenant that god makes at the beginning so this is where i think that's where i actually think that reformed theology and covenant theology can actually be helpful because um talks about a covenant of works, but that covenant of works is sometimes called a covenant of creation, which is really interesting because if that's true, then it's a covenant God makes beyond Adam and Eve. So then you go to places like Jeremiah, I think Jeremiah 33, and he talks about a covenant that God made with the day and the night. What does that mean? Covenant with the day and the night. Hmm. And you talk, and then there's places in Job and some of the other prophets that talk about, um, how God has bound, um, and then it usually uses natural phenomena. Although sometimes it uses like the Pleiades and the Orion, and they're and they're chained, and they're only allowed to do certain things. They're not allowed to cross certain boundaries. In other words, there's rules. We would call those in modern society just um, laws of nature. But I don't think that I think the Bible is thinking of these in terms of covenant because covenant is a, a covenant is an, an agreement that two or more parties have where the higher king is laying down laws for the lower king and the lower king obeys them and he gets certain privileges for doing it. Um, that was the whole point of Adam in the garden. You're supposed to obey. And if you do this, you give life. If you don't, you'll die. And I think that the angels have the same exact thing. So they actually did know full well what they were, were and were not supposed to do. And they had been covenanted with, and this is why they take it so seriously in in first Enoch and they're like, you know, I'm afraid if we don't swear an oath together here on the mountain of swearing that I'm going to be the only one who's going to do it. And it's not going to be good for me. So that's right. <laughs> well, and, and real briefly, since you brought it up, I mean, Enoch was, was widely read among the second temple Jewish period. And, and that, and it's provably, Peter and Jude are quoting from that, right? So that that was an understanding, not not as in canon, uh, you know, in terms of its if its uh, reliability, but in terms of understanding and supporting uh, what happened in Genesis six. And Mike Heiser uh, mentioned uh, a book from Annette Yoshiko Reed where she goes in and explains like fifteen hundred years of how Enoch, the Book of Enoch, was thought of. Very interesting. I, I just ran, ran across her name for the first time today, and I haven't read that book, but I just saw it. It's kind of funny you bring that up. Um, oh. 
There's another yeah. thing with the Jude and Peter that um, this is Richard Bauckham in his word biblical commentary on Second Peter and Jude. He has a great little chart. I don't remember if I put it in the in my giant book or not, but he compares every time that a list of historical um, events take place, and then there's a, a an ethical um, a point to be made at the end. So they're they become an analogy. Um, and there's several of these, like eight, 10, 12, I don't remember, where they use the story of the Watchers, the Flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and usually something like the wilderness or whatever, um, where Israel falls in sin. And it's like, a, it's like a stock image that they were all drawing from, okay? And mm-hmm. Jude and Peter both do this. They both start with this story of that's debated among Christian scholars. Is it really talking about Genesis six or something earlier? Um, and then, uh, then they go straight to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, this is, you find this in all kinds of pseudepigrapha and every single time you find it, it's the watcher story a hundred percent of the time. So why in the world would Jude and Peter, which know full well, what's what all the other literature out there says, why would they use a totally different story, but make you think that it's probably the Genesis six story, but not really. Um, it doesn't make any sense. So that to me is a very powerful argument besides just the exegetical stuff that Jude and Peter have Genesis six in mind. Let me jump in real quick. I, I, and if, let's just take for a second, the, the opinion that the Sethite view is true. You look at all the cultures around the world, they have this story of the angelic mixing yeah. with hum- humanity. Yep. But the Christian view has the Sethite view. It's believers and unbelievers. But <laughs> the, all this, all, all these others are fables and myths, but we've got the truth. I know we, as Christians, kind of get arrogant sometimes that we have that opinion, but the stories of the flood has been replicated in mm-hmm. other nations, along right. with the Greek gods and stuff. So... Isn't it funny that the that Christians will take um, the stories of the flood from all over the world, you know, four hundred of them or whatever, and right. they use this as an apologetic to prove that this is what the Bible the Bible is talking about is real? But then, right. wow. with the preface the preface to the flood, they're like, nope, yeah, <laughs> not that not that one, not that one. Well, they pick and, and choose, and uh, and to kind of. Uh, put another nail in the coffin there with Jude and Peter. I mean, the language is right out of Enoch, in my opinion, too. You know, chained in darkness, angels that sin. Yeah, absolutely. Where do where do we have any reference biblically to those kind of words? And I think it's what the only like two times in the whole Bible that the Tartarus is is mentioned. It, it's the only it, time in the New Testament that is mentioned, and this comes okay. straight out of. Um, Greek mythology, where Zeus locks up his father in Tartarus for what he for what they did. So, I mean, it's exactly the same story, using the exact same word deliberately. The only time it's ever used, wow. and we know that he, we know that Jude, we know that Jude is reading Enoch because he quotes it, <laughs> let alone alludes to it like half a dozen times or something. Well, and we haven't even gotten to the giants, and uh, I, I would, and that's purposely because we, I, I really just wanted to focus on the Sethite and sons of God. 
But um, I might be paraphrasing, Doug, but I think you said something like this in your book. The, the only sound exegetical interpretation and was the standard view of Jesus' time for hundreds of years is the supernatural procreation view of Genesis 6. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, as far as I've been able to see, now, obviously somebody could come up and dig something up out of the sands that we are not aware of, but it doesn't exist that I know of. And um, The new Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I wrote this in my notes, guys. Um, I, I put a bunch of if, if-then statements. I said, if the angelic view was a fringe idea only back in the Second Temple time, and if we had zero or scant evidence of giants, which we know you've got tons of evidence. And if it could be shown to be eisegesis of the text of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which, Doug, you went through and, and showed that it's clearly ex- exegetically sound. And if the common view of the early church fathers and biblical authors was naturalistic, and we know it wasn't. And if we never saw angels appear as men, as eating food, Right? right? We we didn't touch on right. that too much, right. but angels are, are shown. That's one of the, the arguments they use. Well, but oh, we did that. bring up Sodom and Gomorrah because they yes, they literally right. want to, the, the men, well, it's the men of Sodom want to have relations with them. So That's exactly right. right. Um, and if there were not stories, Luke, you brought this up, all over the world of humans with angels procreating, then if all of these things are true, or even a couple— then maybe the supernatural view of Genesis 6 would be suspect. And I think this is just in my mind, it points to the nefarious intent of discrediting Jesus as the Messiah, discrediting the Bible, and giving ammunition to the to the criticizers and atheists and agnostics against the truth of God. Yeah, I think what you gain in the Sethite view you already have later on in the Bible, so you don't need it. Um, and what you lose is much, much more significant than what you gain. And would you say, Doug, that this is maybe in line with some of the progressive Christianity where they water down things in Genesis and say, ah, it's allegory, don't take it literal? I mean, it just seems kind of in that vein of, of just putting more doubts into the into God's word. And that's an interesting point because the people that usually are are saying this are actually the conservatives, not the liberals. So, hmm. um, it, well, it's definitely demythology, yeah. demythologization, and whatever that that big old word is that they talk about, right? Um, yeah. And as far as that goes, that's in line. That is that is kind of a liberal impulse, um, at least in the modern sense, because uh, scientism and naturalism and rationalism have just done a number on our view of the supernatural. So this kind of plays into that. But because this view is so much older and because the guys that, you know, every one of those guys I mentioned earlier, Chrysostrom and Augustine and Luther and Calvin, they have very healthy views of the supernatural. So I don't think that yeah. it was something that they did, again, on on purpose for, or for an evil reason. But I do think right. that this side of the Enlightenment and modernism, um, to hold on to that view tenaciously, may very well have some of that um, latent in, in the view, you know, that we're not even aware of. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. That's that's a good point you brought up about the divide, the the conservative side and the and the more liberal side with the progressive Christian. You know, I think Luke, we've we've mentioned it here and there on some of our shows that you know you're you're too far on the conservative side. You you tend to discount supernatural. You become maybe a little legalistic, things like that. You you start to err on the on the more liberal side. Maybe you are all about you know signs and wonders and experience and all of these kinds of things. And yeah, somewhere in the middle, I think, is where you're you're finding a, a healthy balance of those things. Well, thank you, Doug, so much. This was this was excellent. Uh, really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, I'm glad you guys asked me to to do the program. I, I haven't really done like a something quite like this for a long time, so it's kind of fun. Yeah, has it's been a while. Well, we were again, we were inspired by Nate and Luke on Blurry Creature. That's how we learned to you, and uh, very much enjoyed your your episodes with them. Um, you know, I have your, your giants book. I, I am slowly making my way through the conspiracy theory book too. <laughs> uh, other, other things are drawing my attention away, but, but I come back to it every now and again. Uh, cause, cause definitely we all have that moment where we're like, yeah, the things I'm being told isn't quite right. Something's so, not right yeah. <laughs> well, this is great. Um, ho- hopefully we could do it again. Uh, if your schedule allows and, and dig into the giants, but I think, you know, hopefully we're giving our listeners some foundation for how we can understand Genesis 6 and the rest of the Bible properly and set the stage to say something very unique was going on here. And now let's look at the rest of the evidence. We have the, we have the giant wars with Joshua and Abraham. We have the book of Enoch. We have evidence of giants all around the world. And maybe that's maybe that's the next logical step. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Well, I guess with that, uh, we we can wrap up. And um, Doug, thanks again for your time. Very much appreciate it. Um, God bless you in your in your ministry out there in Colorado. How did your uh, How did your Nuggets do? <laughs> I could, unbelievable, man. Fifty yeah. years of my life, I never ever thought that they would win the championship. Oh, I never thought they would fantastic. even go. So, yep, they won that's it fantastic. all. I don't, I don't follow it that much, but I even my my supervisor mentioned the Nuggets a week or two ago, and my ears perked up because you mentioned them. So, <laughs> you know, I, I've been I've been mad at the NBA for what they've done politically in the last three years, but they put it all aside for for at least the playoffs, and there was there was none of this woke stuff in the commercials on the on the backs of their jerseys on the anywhere i couldn't believe it and so i was very thankful (laughs) yes absolutely well thanks again doug we'll we'll let you go and uh well hopefully we'll be in touch all right sounds good Doug, do you want to plug uh your some of your books uh where people can find you best best way to to reach out to you uh to those that are listening yeah sure um yeah, all my stuff is on Amazon. So I don't know how many books I have. Like I've written maybe 10 or something like that. And then I have some other books that I've edited that are some other guys talking, especially about Christ in the Old Testament. Um, so those, the ones that I, that are most related to this 
you know, podcast or the giant book. It just came out with the 10th anniversary edition of that. Got some new material in it and it's edited. It looks a lot better than it did the first time around, I think. Um, and uh, the Angel of the Lord book that I did with a fellow pastor um, is a deep dive into who the angel is. And that's the Christ and the Old Testament stuff that we were talking about at the beginning of the show. And then I have a series of books that uh, one that I did and then um, three other uh, Puritan guys that all talk about kind of this two powers in heaven uh, a few hundred years before Alan Segal ever did. And they're just fantastic. So I edited those and put those out. Um, but a bunch of notes in there to explain who the guys are they're talking about and whatever. So those those are fun. Uh, those are the ones that are probably the, the main thing. I, I have a I have a commentary on Galatians that I never talk about, but I, I preach the Galatians and turn it into a book, and uh, it's got this whole worldview in it. And Galatians, the, the whole area of Galatia, like the giants literally, that's where they migrated to after they were kicked out of Canaan. So uh, I think Paul was quite aware of the history of it, and believe it or not, that little letter has a lot of crazy things in it that's related to this conversation. Now I'm going to have to read Galatians again. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I pulled up your website uh, as well, uh, douglasvandorn.com, right? You, lo- you lost the, the, the preferred domain a couple years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. I lost all the clout <laughs> I had on the Google, um, so I had to start over. But it's starting, to, it's starting to get back up there, so that's good. Uh, and that's got, up. you can go to find all my stuff there. And then our church website, I also get that because that has all, a link to all of our um, sermons. Uh, anything okay. I've preached in the last 20 years, um, most of it also has PDFs. Oh, wow. And so they're all audio and, and or PDF. And so you can read those, take them for free. And the, the website is uh, rbcnc.com. So it stands for our church, Reformed Baptist Church of Northern Colorado. So rbcnc.com. And just look up the sermons and other things you want to look at it. Sounds great. Excellent. Thank you again for your time. And we'd love to yeah, do this again. Guys. Thanks a lot. All right, take care, Doug. All right, good night. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Days of Noah podcast. We appreciate you tuning in again this week. As always, don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and follow us on your favorite podcast platform and pass it along to your family and friends. It really does help grow the channel. If you'd like to help support us financially to help keep these episodes coming, click the link at the bottom of the description. Even a few dollars a month would go a long way. We love bringing you interesting topics to discuss, bringing on guests who have a diverse point of view, and have a lot more research on the topics that we investigate than Luke and I do. And all of that takes time and effort. So even a few dollars a month would go a long way towards helping us uh, keep the quality of the production up and keep these episodes coming. So thanks again for all of your support and tune in again next week. God bless. God bless.